Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, I'll go ahead and assume we all want to achieve a long-term success in life. But as Lewis Howes tells me in this episode, striving for success is actually a fool's errand. Now, this may sound strange coming from a wildly successful New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, industry-leading show host, and former pro athlete. Lewis is arguably one of the greats, but stay with me here. To achieve true greatness, Lewis says you need to understand and heal your personal trauma, find a meaningful mission, and fulfill your purpose in the service of others. And in today's motivational episode, he'll teach you exactly how to do just that. Lewis, so good to see you. Welcome. My man, Jason, good to see you. You know, I I was saying to you before we started recording, I was trying to remember the last time I saw you in person. And I believe it was like January or February of 17 in New York. Uh, we were having a, a, a party to celebrate Amanda Chantel Bacon, the founder of Moonju. She did a cookbook and you were in town and you stopped by for a minute to say hello. I think that was the last time I saw you. It's been six years. Crazy, man. It's been a long time. And it has been a long time and it's been so great to see your ascents. Uh, you were just crushing it. You know, you've turned out best-selling books. Your podcast has exploded. You've now gone; it's expanded to to radio. And, and so, maybe start with telling folks a little bit about your your background before I butcher it any further. I grew up very insecure and struggled in school, so I always had this kind of belief that. I was never as smart as everyone else based on my academic results, my grades, and just how much I struggled in school. So with that, I, I was like, what can I be good at? And sports was a thing that I naturally leaned towards. I was one of the tallest kids in my class, just like you were growing up. But I was like kind of goofy, skinny, awkward, tall, and eventually got into my body and into athletics where I became, you know, pretty good, pretty coordinated, pretty talented, you know, was all state in multiple sports, all American in multiple sports in college, and then played professional football, arena football, and also eight years with the USA men's national handball team, the Olympic team, although we never qualified for the Olympics. But that was kind of my my background was I wasn't good at school. I struggled. I was very insecure. It was It was hard for me to communicate in front of my classmates or peers or just because I didn't think I was smart enough. And then uh, I used all my energy towards sports. But when the the sports was over, I got injured. And when sports was done, um, I really went through kind of a crisis for about a year and a half in 2008, 2009, when I was trying to figure out, well, who am I? What's my identity? What am I going to do now? Uh, I've got no money. I've got no direction. I'm sleeping on my sister's couch, feeling like a broke joke. And I really had my self-worth tied into my athletic gifts. And so I was like, well, if I can't do the things I know that I'm good at, then what am I good at? And will anyone actually be my friend, accept me, like me, love me? You know, it was just kind of all these questions and, and feelings that was happening. But I, I did what I knew at the time, which was from sports, I found coaches in life. And I was just like, who are the men that are farther ahead than me in in their careers, in business, in their relationship and marriage and kids and family that I can learn from. So I started seeking out kind of coaches and mentors 
around this time and just asking them how they overcame their challenges, asking them about their success, asking them about their lives. And that gave me a lot of wisdom to get into entrepreneurship and to start overcoming my fears and insecurities that I had because I had a lot of And I just spent a couple of years just say I'm going to go all in on my fears to try to make to try to make them really skills and assets as opposed to things that made me feel powerless. And I'm just going to listen to these mentors that I found and just do whatever they tell me to do. Like a trained athlete, I attacked life and I attacked my fears and I attacked uh, you know, figuring out entrepreneurship when I didn't think I would ever be an entrepreneur was not my plan or vision or goal, really. It, it more came from necessity. And that, that kind of kicked off my like mid to late 20s was learning, developing, overcoming fears, figuring out online marketing and trying lots of different things in online marketing um, until I eventually got pretty pretty good at a couple of things. One of them being, a you know, social media, but specifically LinkedIn and kind of mastered this platform. And then I got pretty good at, at learning how to create, you know, free online trainings, webinars, which a lot of people are aware of now, but back in 2009, no one was really doing them. And so I was doing these kind of webinar trainings for free to build audience, to build platform, to connect people and offer value and then selling online courses around that time as well. So that became my thing for a number of years until I realized, okay, this isn't the vision I have anymore. And I, and I started to reevaluate what is my vision? What do I want to do now that I've got some money, you know, that could, I'm not broke on my sister's couch anymore. I've got some savings for maybe a, a year or two. I could survive. It allowed me to take a step back and evaluate and say, what do I want next? And that's when the school of greatness came about. I was like, I really just want to I'm curious about people. I want to interview people, people that are much smarter, more talented, wiser than me, just like I did the previous four or five years with these mentors. But I want to do it and, and give the wisdom to anyone that wants to watch or listen and also help myself in the process as a guinea pig. So last week was our 10-year anniversary of the School of Greatness. And uh, it's been a beautiful journey since then of learning, discovering, making mistakes, creating, trying stuff, and just trying to be a better human. Well, congrats on the anniversary. And and there, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and one of the things you mentioned a couple of times in being paramount to your success is your ability to identify coaches and mentors. And I look at 2023, there is no shortage of information. There is no shortage of people trying to coach you or mentor you. And I'm curious, what should a person look for when they're seeking a coach and mentor? Because there are a lot of bad ones out there too. I think someone who's got really great values and that you can look up, not for the success of the material things that they have, although that might be something you're interested in as well, but really do they have the material success or the accomplishments, but also do they have beautiful relationships? Are they well-respected in their, with their family, their friends, and their community? You know, have they had challenges in the past that they've overcome and they're wiser and better for them now? Do they treat people with respect and are they kind and generous? For me, I found, you know, kind of three key mentors who all had, again, great family values, were married men, were like quality fathers, and were innovators, creative, successful in their own way. But they just had good morals, good values. And so it was a model that I could 
look at and be inspired by. I don't think I had, you know, I was still trying to figure out my life in my 20s and probably made too many mistakes than I should have. But I, I saw like a vision of what was possible for myself based on these these guys and lots of people that I've met since then that I've interviewed over the last decade. But for me, it's like, do they have really good values? And and I think you you start to be influenced by people that you spend time with and that you learn from. And if you learn from people that don't have the best values um, and you're around them all the time, you just may be more influenced to lean in that direction as well. So that's what I look for. I think this segues to the title of the book, which is The Greatness Mindset, because you talk about the difference between success and greatness. So can you spend a moment there? Because to me, it seems like a me versus we and is values related. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I wanted success growing up. That's It was kind of like, I'm going after success. I want to accomplish. I want to create my goals and make my dreams happen. And, and a lot of them happened, you know, probably 80% of everything I thought about wanting to do for decades, I eventually made happen, but I was making them happen with, without the right energy, without the right alignment. I was making them happen to win at all costs, to prove people wrong, to show myself that I'm valuable or worthy enough of these things. But when I would accomplish them, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, I I wasn't happy still. I wasn't happy. And in fact, I was almost angrier after I would accomplish them because I thought I would accept and love and appreciate myself differently, but I didn't know how to. I didn't have the skill about how to do that. So success for me is really about selfish goals and dreams, which is not, there's nothing wrong with having goals and dreams, big goals, big dreams. But when it's to fill something inside of you, to prove people wrong, to to look good, um, it's just never going to feel fulfilling. And so I started to shift this when I hit 30 and kind of had an awakening around, oh, wow, I've, I've been doing this and accomplishing and sports and business, and it's not working in terms of the inner workings. It was effective externally and I was accomplishing, but I wasn't feeling harmony inside. And so once I started to, to learn the actual principle of win-win, which wasn't even a concept growing up. It was like, you must win at all costs to be the best. Once I started to learn the idea, like if, if no one wins unless everyone wins. So you can still succeed and win and be number one bestseller and all these things. But if it's in spite of other people, or if it's for other people to lose or to, to suffer, it, it's never going to feel great at the end of the day. And so I really... It's kind of one of the reasons why I started the School of Greatness because I was like, I want to create an experience where I completely drop my ego and make it about others and not about me and and shine the light on others and and not sh just shine the light on me as some expert. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I needed a big mental shift in my in my ego. And I wanted to practice this as well, where it was just all about others. And I've kind of at the other stage now, 10 years later, where I'm like, okay, I've been serving others for so long that it's it's time for me to use my voice more. It's time for me to put myself out there, but also make sure I'm empowering in others as well. So success for me is more about you accomplishing your goals in selfish ways to fill up a hole about not feeling good enough or proving people wrong. Greatness is about accomplishing all your biggest goals and dreams in the service of others and including and empowering others in that process. 
And that's a more sustainable, renewable energy when we live that way. You know, I can't help but think of social media when you mention winning at all costs, doing so in spite of people, showing people they're wrong. And something I've admired about you is you're always so positive and you're prolific. And there seems to be a trend where there are many people out there looking to build their personal brand. And I don't know if this is just specific to health and wellness. I think it's everywhere. And the way they're doing so isn't by putting out empowering positive content. It's trying to take people down. And look, unfortunately, algorithms value uh, engagement. And one of the most valuable ways to drive engagement, unfortunately, is anger. That's proven. And so I'll just pause there. And I'm curious, curious what your take, because you just stay away from it. You do your thing, but it's it's out there. And I just, I, I'm just so opposed to it. But I think it's a problem in our in our world to health and wellness positive people do it all the time what what's what's your take on all of that other than i'm staying out of it i see it for what it is now i mean i used to be a lot more triggered and emotionally reactive before i hit 30 and, and i'm still not perfect that still happens from time to time but it's i'm so much more aware of it now and i'm and i have constant emotional coaching to, to mend and heal the different things that might cause me to be triggered. I'm constantly aware. I work with someone every two weeks to navigate anything from the past that I have yet mended or created new meaning around from things that upset me, hurt me, that caused me to block off, that caused me to be more aggressive. And so I'm in that process continually of healing and proving that journey in my life knowing that I'll never be a perfect human being. So when I see people leading with anger, I have a lot of compassion because I used to be reactive with anger when I felt attacked or someone didn't understand me or someone was judging me or whatever. So I see it for what it is. And I know that it's just that individual hasn't learned the tools of emotional regulation, which I think is one of the most powerful tools we can all learn. It doesn't mean we have to like something or it doesn't mean we're not going to be frustrated or sad or hurt and have no emotions, but it's learning to respond based on our mission and our vision and our values, not based on our wounds. And that's what gets us into trouble when we focus more of our energy on being right, looking good, you know, defending ourselves as opposed to, okay, this is going to happen. People are going to attack, judge, and criticize no matter what I do. Whether I'm broke and poor on my sister's couch, people are going to make fun of me and criticize me. If I'm going after my dreams and putting a message out there that I care about, people are going to criticize me and try to pull me down. So I might as well do the thing that I enjoy doing that I believe in and keep improving myself along the way, knowing it's going to happen either way. I might as well try to make the best of this experience and the best of my time. So I, I try to have as much compassion and not judge, although it's hard not to judge all the time, but that's my intention. And, and focus on how can I be an interruption for good to keep creating. When I see more and more anger and aggression on social media, I just say, how can we as a team, as a company, myself, give people the tools you know, the content that will interrupt them in a positive way that maybe will start to shift how they interact, how they respond, how, what they post about. And that's been my intention. I want to, I want to read something really quick for you that I got, um, over this weekend. It's from a, um, I went, I've been to prisons 
a handful of times to do some men's work to help men who are murderers heal the wounds of their past that caused them to be extremely reactive to to and to do bad things. And um, the guy who has taken me a couple of times to these prisons is named Scott Budnick. He's a former big Hollywood producer, and he's made his mission about like helping men get out of prison and transform their lives. And he's, I did a, a live stream a year and a half ago during the pandemic to talk about previous book that I wrote called The Mask of Masculinity, which is about how men can, can heal and can, can respond in a loving way as opposed to an angry way. And a lot of the pain in the world, I believe, is, is caused by people who have yet found out how to heal their wounds. And therefore, they have anger and they lash out and they do bad things. This is from uh, just a quick little text. He said, he sent me a photo of a letter, uh, a handwritten letter from a, a prisoner in Pelican Bay State Prison. He's a 21-year-old who's been in solitary confinement for two years. And he said he, has, he, had, a, he had a swastika tattooed on his chest uh, when he met him. This is my friend Scott when he met this prisoner. And he said he dropped out of the white gang. He wrote a whole letter saying that he dropped out of the gang he's in. He's starting to heal. He's starting to mend. And when Scott asked him why he dropped out of the gang, he said, Lewis Howes and the Mask of Masculinity. And he said he's, he's read the book four or five times, and he started to learn about all the, the things that he didn't have the emotional tools and he had a programming of anger, pain, win at all costs, which caused him to get to take actions that caused him in prison. And then he kept causing him to protect himself while he was in prison to join the gang and do all these other things to belong and feel protection. And again, I think that's an extreme case of what someone can do to take bad actions to get them into prison and behind bars based on emotional wounds. But you see it every moment on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or wherever, people spewing anger, frustration, and hate because it gets a lot of attention. But that doesn't serve the person spewing it or the people consuming it or reacting to it. It only hurts us more. And so, again, my whole intention is to be an interruption, just like you guys are doing as well, is being an interruption for people to support them and figuring out how they can be less triggered. And that's really what a greatness is about. I don't think you can be great if you're constantly in reaction, make wrong, prove people wrong mode. I think it has to be about how can I be in service of other people on my goals uh, and on the path of, of achieve, achieving my goals and dreams. I love that. And, and I want to spend a moment on the mask of masculinity, even though it was the, the previous book, because I think there's an important story here. And, and that's your story about healing your own wounds and your and your personal trauma. So maybe just spend a moment talking about your process. Yeah, I mean, when I was, I've talked about this many times, but when I was five, I was sexually abused. My brother went to prison for four and a half years when I was eight until I was 12 years old. And I just kind of struggled, you know, growing up because I didn't have a lot of friends. When my brother was in prison, I wasn't allowed to really see a lot of friends be, or have friends because the neighborhood parents wouldn't really let their kids hang out with me. So it was just kind of a confusing time until I begged my parents to send me away at 13 and I went to a private boarding school because my parents were fighting off and, and it was just kind of like a, it didn't feel good, you know, just pretty much every day I didn't feel good about myself. 
And um, I didn't know how to escape it. And so I, I essentially begged my parents to send me away. And once I got into sports, that was kind of like my mask. Okay, I found out something that can protect me. I can feel good. That's athletics. And I would do anything I could to be the best as possible because it would validate me. You know, it would validate me when I'd win. I'd get acknowledged. I'd find, you know, more people would like me. I'd be accepted on teams, all this stuff. So I put all my effort and energy into sports, but I never learned how to heal. It wasn't until after sports was over and I was in business and then I was in relationships and I just had breakdown after breakdown because I didn't have an outlet to get my frustration and angers out. I used to have that in sports. Now I didn't have it. And kind of all these breakdowns that were happening at the age of like 29 came out all around the same time. And I was like, okay, something's not working. Something's not working. Like I'm accomplishing, I'm getting results, but why am I in all these relationship breakdowns? The common denominator is me. So let me take a look in the mirror. And I started to really dive in and say, okay, I'm willing to look at this and address this. And I started doing therapy and I started doing emotional intelligence workshops and just trying anything I could to figure out how to find, to create peace in my heart. And I wasn't even sure what I was looking for. Like I had been hiding and afraid internally to reveal the things about me that I did not like for so long. So for 25 years, no one knew this about me. And it wasn't until I started to open up and, and talk about kind of my shames and insecurities and, and things that I was afraid of when I started the process and when I started to integrate healing. And it, it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of time and practice of letting go and, and creating a safety inside of me. But once I started to do that, I started to see a shift in all of the external results as well. And it's been a 10-year journey of, of unlocking and you know diving deeper and mending different things from every memory I can think of that ever affected me. And that's been the journey. You know, I started, I started doing this thing two years ago where I had a photo of my five-year-old self on my screensaver. Right now I'm showing you, for those that aren't watching, I'm showing you a photo of about my 17-year-old self. This is when I was like a junior or senior in high school. And I decided to do an exercise with uh, an emotional coach starting two years ago with this process of going back into every painful memory. This is, I don't know if this is like um, something I'd recommend for everyone, but I was just like, I want complete freedom inside of me. I want complete peace, freedom, and clarity so that I can be more effective in my life with my relationships, more present, more loving, more generous, less reactive, less stressed, and more calm. And so I was just, I've been on a mission these last couple of years of like figuring out what are any other areas of my life from my past that are still affecting me today in a way that does not support me or my meaningful mission or the people in my life because it causes me trigger or anxiety or stress. And so I started doing these exercises and practices to mend the different moments of my life that caused pain and create new meaning. You know, Man's Search for Meaning with Viktor Frankl's a book that I love where he talks about some of the most tragic things that happen in your life, they're unfortunate. But if you don't find new meaning, powerful meanings from them, they will keep you a prisoner for the rest of your life. They will keep hurting you. Those events will continue to show up in your present and in your future. 
So that's what I've been doing is mending these moments, journaling, processing, doing exercises. And the goal is to go from, you know, five, my earliest memories, all the way to present day. And I'm about halfway there. Well, I, I, I love that you're embarking on this process and you're sharing it because unfortunately there is a lot of trauma in the world. You, you are not alone. And what, what I'm so curious about is this idea of there are two people experience the same trauma. You know, there's you, you're I'm not going to say successful. You're, you, you've, you're, you're unlocking greatness. Uh, I'm careful to use that word with you. So you're, you've had the greatness mindset and there are other people i'll go back to the moment you're on your sister's couch i'm like that, that happened i was on my mom's couch a long time ago too i know the feeling and so there are some people that have that trauma and maybe they're you know sitting on the couch and some people get up and they work their tail off and they work through the pain and the suffering and they do the work and they're living their dream and there are others that just can never emerge and I'm curious, how do you think about that? I actually have been thinking about this in the last week because I think it comes down to two things. One, I felt like there was a voice inside of me like saying you're meant for more. You know, I don't know. It wasn't saying, speaking to me like in my ears, but I felt like this calling like, okay, I'm meant to do something more. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I don't want to be in this position anymore. So let me move. Let me try a bunch of things. Let me see what's going to work. And a lot of things didn't work right away, but I was in action trying stuff. Uh, the second thing was I had self-doubt in certain areas, but I had belief in other areas. I'm a big believer that self-doubt is the killer of dreams, but I was able based on previous results in sports, I was able to say, okay, if I just make my life like a sport, because I don't know how to do anything else. If I can create a game scenario, find a coach, you know, that I respect and trust, have them give me feedback and create a game plan, I can take action. Maybe it doesn't work, but at least I can try stuff and try to make something work. Because I had learned that before in sports that I knew if I can recreate that in life or in business or career, then some I'll move forward in some direction. Um, that was the second thing. The third thing is I... I didn't want to see myself as a victim. I was like, I want to see myself as powerful. That's a big problem, big problem right now. And I think I didn't want to, I, because I was getting rewarded for for being victim for having a victimized experience. I was in a you know I had a surgery, I had a cast on, I was I had no money. My father had just went through uh, three months in a coma, and he was struggling to kind of recover. It was the economy, you know, 2008 economy crash, the housing market. They were, I still didn't have a college degree. It's like I could have stacked 10, 12, 15 different things of why you should feel sorry for me. And I, and I did. And I, and I felt sorry for myself. And I could have stayed there easily. And I could have had, you know, and I'm sure other people have worse cases of victimizing experiences that are even more convincing than I did. But it was pretty big at the time for me with all the different things that had happened. I lost my dream. I lost my career. I lost, I had no money. I was in three credit cards. All these things were stacked up. I could make a case of why I should have stayed on the couch longer. But I think I didn't want to associate my identity as a victim. And again, I experienced what it felt like for a number of months and I didn't like it. 
And I was just like, I don't want to live like this where everyone has to take care of me, where I feel helpless, where I feel, uh, you know, the world was against me and all these things. Why did all these things happen to me? And, oh, and my life is over. I didn't want to live in that space anymore because it didn't feel powerful. And I wanted to feel powerful, not powerless. And so I just quickly realized, like, I've got to move into action. And my my vision of, of taking action was stronger than my fear of being humiliated and embarrassed of failure or it not working. And so I just had that, I don't know, that little extra courage that said, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no clue if this is going to work, but I need to do something and see what will work because I don't want to be a victim anymore. So that was the, the third thing that really supported me. I love that. And we share a similar experience where, you know, as I mentioned a, a little bit earlier than 08, I was, you know, back home on my mother's couch in the basement. So I used to joke, I'm like a worse version of George Costanza from, from Seinfeld at the time. And, you know, I was going through a transition. I was successful trader on wall street, but I wanted more. And I, I started a few companies and they, they weren't successful. But I, the way I viewed that journey looking back is, you know, each, I didn't know where I was going, but I just knew I had to try something, you know, whether the business worked or not, obviously I wanted it to work It ultimately failed, but I learned something and it was moving forward. And when you don't know what to do, you just got to do something. I love what you talk about. I'll segue the 1% rule in the book. You just got to like do, do something. Can you talk about the 1% rule? I think the goal is to be 1% better every single day at the thing that you're doing, not to try to like be so extreme and I'm going to go all in like every day and and try 100% of the things all the time and 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 try all these new habits. It's like, how can I be 1% better every day consistently over time? That's something I've done with the podcast. You know, it's been 10 years. I wasn't good the first year. I was pretty average at best, had no clue what I was doing. I was using my iPhone to record interviews, just putting it on a table and recording um, I had, you know, no production quality, no interview training skills, none of this stuff. But I was like, okay, let me just try this. Let me fumble around. And each time I just said, okay, how can I make this better every episode? And 10 years later, you know, almost 1400 episodes later, when you apply that rule of I'm going to be 1% better, I'm going to, I'm going to listen a little bit better. I'm going to be, I'm going to interrupt a little bit less. I'm going to try to increase the production value. I'm going to prepare a little bit more. You do that over time, you just increase your value in life and you become better at what you're doing. So that's been the strategy for me. And you build confidence. You know, you mentioned self-doubt being the killer. That's how you overcome it. And, I, and I'll segue. I, I love your focus on athletics. That, that I, I've learned so many life lessons from playing sports and it's something that's really important to Colleen and I as we raise our daughters. With sports, it's it's somewhat simple in that if you if you show up, if you work hard, you're going to make progress. You're going to see results and the life. Le- you, you learn how to lose. If you're part of a team, you learn how to win. And that's really invaluable. Exactly. And, and so something else you, you mentioned, which, which I love in the book, it's a chapter, meaningful mission. I think that's, that's really important for, for people listening. I think there are a lot of people at, at a crossroads, maybe they're not experiencing fulfillment in their lives, whether it's personally or professionally and really questioning what they're doing. So can you walk us through what it means to have a meaningful mission? Well, I just think it's really hard to feel 
ultimate fulfillment if you're not clear on where you're going. And like you said, it's better to go, you know, somewhere than nowhere. Even if you're not sure where you're going or where you want to go, like going anywhere is better than going nowhere because you're learning, you're developing, you're learning what you like, what you don't like and things like that. But in one sentence, my my goal is for everyone to get clear on what their meaningful mission is for this season of life. When I was on my sister's couch, I couldn't think beyond just making enough money to get off my sister's couch. Like that was my mission for that season of life. You know, as an athlete, you know, when you're in a, a basketball season, you're thinking about the next four months, you have a, a vision for the season. You usually have a goal for the season and that's where you're focused on. And then after the season, you can reevaluate in the off season. Okay. Is this still my mission? Do I still want to keep playing this game or do I want to do something else? But I'm a big believer that we should all get to one sentence mission for each season of life and and be willing to evaluate when the season's over and transition. For me, it's to serve and impact 100 million lives weekly to help them improve the quality of their life. That's the mission. And I know what I'm doing. I can make decisions based on that mission. I can say yes and no based on will it serve that in this season of life. And it just helps me get clear on where I'm going, how I'm going to measure it and why it's important to me. And if people are like, well, I'm not sure how to figure this out. There's the three P process. Uh, the first P is passion. And I, and a lot of, you hear a lot of people say like, don't follow your passion, like just follow the profit or something like that. But for me, I feel like you get burnt out if you're not excited about something or at least curious or interested about it. So the first P is passion is figuring out what you're curious about, what you're interested in, what excites you, um, what you would like to think about, even if you didn't get paid. So for me, I didn't know that asking people questions would turn into a, you know, eight figure media business. I had no clue that would happen. I, I didn't think it could make me any money, but I was curious about it. I was excited about it. I knew that I would do it for free. Like I was, I wasn't trying to make money the first year. I was like, I'm going to do this for free for one year as an experiment to see how it does. But I want to do it for me because it lights me up. So I was curious about it. I was excited about it and I was interested in it. And, and I've been able to sustain it through challenges, through hard times, through ups and downs over the last 10 years and still be just as excited about it. And I think that's something to be curious about. What is that thing that's interesting for you? And it, and it may evolve over time. You know, it may evolve over time. The second, the second P is your power and also the things that make you feel powerless. And so figuring out what are your assets, your skills, your unique gifts, and also your invisible gifts. For me, I, again, I wasn't really sure what my talents and skills were. I was like, uh, you know, what am I going to do? But I knew that I wanted to connect people. I knew that I loved networking. I knew that I loved meeting new people. I knew that I cared deeply but I didn't know caring would be you know, like an asset or a skill, right? So it's more like the invisible skills also. And you might have to ask your friends or family what those are for you, but figuring out where you are, where your powers lie and also where you feel powerless. You know, I had a fear of public speaking for many, many years. I had a fear of lots of different things. And um, early in my 20s, I wrote a list of all my fears and I started attacking them one by one. And I still do this today. I started attacking them one by one. And the things that made me feel powerless actually are things now that make me feel very powerful. I never thought I would speak in front of people or do what I'm doing, but because I went all in and took action on my fears, now I get paid, you know, a lot of money to speak on a stage. 
and I have confidence on stage. And it, and it actually gives you more confidence when you overcome the thing that you think is impossible to do. Um, so that's the second P is figuring out your power and the things that make you powerless and overcoming those. And the third one that I think is sustainable energy on your mission is finding a problem that you'd like to solve and, and helping people solve problems and figuring out what problem that is for you. So for me, again, I believe the big problem in people's lives is self-doubt. I think people struggle with self-doubt and it comes out in lots of different ways. You see the effects of it in lots of different ways. And if people could rid themselves or manage self-doubt in a better way and process the healing, the wounds, the pains that cause them to doubt themselves, that cause them to be fearful of failure, success, or judgment, they would live a more meaningful, rich, abundant life. They would be more peaceful. They would be more present, engaged, caring, and that would ripple throughout the world. So for me, that's my mission. And it was a problem. My, my friend Rory Vaden says, you are perfectly positioned to help the person you once were. And I was riddled with self-doubt in, in certain areas of my life, and it caused me a lot of pain. And I went through a 10-year journey, and I'm still on the journey of growing, improving, healing, and, and, and taking it to the next level. And I've seen personally, firsthand, the benefits of mending, healing, transforming that pain into something that is a superpower of yours personally. And I've seen the benefits I've had internally, health-wise, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and the external results that follow. And um, that's the problem I'm looking to solve. And again, if you can follow the things that you're interested in or curious about your passion, if you can figure out what your talents and superpowers are, but also go all in on your things that make you feel powerless, and then you can find a problem you'd like to solve, I just feel like it makes you a lot, it makes it a lot easier to get up and be excited even when you're in breakdown, even when you're overwhelmed and stressed. It allows you to manage it with more ease. You know, self-doubt to me makes a lot of sense. Fear of failure makes a lot of sense. But you also talk about in the book, fear of success. To me, that one doesn't make as much sense. Talk about that. It didn't make sense to me growing up because that's always what I wanted. I was like, I'm driven by success. This is what I want. Um, but as I started to go around and kind of study these three fears over the last 10 years and start asking all these individuals on the on on my show about these things. And as I started to go around and, and speak about it, I would ask people in rooms, you know, say there's 500 people in a room. I would say, how many people here have ever been afraid of failure? A lot of people would raise their hand. And it's one of the things that causes them, that holds them back from taking action on what they want, the fear of failure. And I'd say, how many people here are afraid of success? Almost as many people were afraid of success. And I, and I didn't understand it. And I started to ask them questions, why? This was probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago when I started to ask in public about this. And so many people would say, well, um, you know, there's a whole thing of like, I can't remember the stat. It's like 78% of like NFL players go bankrupt like four years after they retire or something like that, right? It's like, we're, a lot of people aren't taught how to manage success. And if we use that scenario, that kind of small industry of once they're successful, 
they end up spending their money on all their friends. So, and now there's people coming out of the woodworks and asking for things. And now you don't know who your friends really are because do they want to be around you for your money, for your success, because you have access to things, because they can help you more. But would they be your friend if you didn't have that money or success? And so I think it's the wesh, the the pressure and the weight of success and the responsibility. Well, okay, I got to the top. Can I stay at the top? And what happens if I fall? Then is anyone going to accept me and love me? And then it all goes away. So it's that fear that that started to make sense to me after I understood it. There's also an amazing documentary you would love called The Weight of Gold. It's actually kind of sad, but it's a powerful documentary because it's about Olympic gold medalists who commit suicide within a year after they win or go or over it's I mean it's it's sad but it's a powerful documentary they you know they overdose they not all of them but some of them that weren't able to manage or navigate the pressure and it's also like I had the greatest moments of my life will I ever experience this feeling ever again that's why a lot of people are afraid of it you know it, it's I have watched that documentary and you know we we have some friends who have medals um and, and they've been open about their their mental health struggles. Caroline Burkle, a friend of ours, I think she was a bronze or silver medalist. I don't remember, but has been very open about her struggles with mental health. And you know, it, it makes total sense in that you work so hard as a kid towards achieving this thing, and then you achieve it, and you're in front of hundreds of millions of people, and then boom, it's over, and everyone kind of forgets about you. Yeah, maybe you get a few weeks of celebrations and congrats, and every once in a while, people have said, "Oh, you won that medal a few years ago," but you worked twenty years for a dream, and then it's over. You accomplish it, but if we can't figure out how to reinvent, create a new identity, and develop a new meaningful mission once a big dream is accomplished, we are in for a lot of trouble. And this is why you see, a, a, you know. Those without a meaningful mission can be extremely destructive if they don't, if they're not clear on where they're going. You see this with veterans from the military who, you know, six months, a year afterwards, they don't have a mission anymore. It's like, what do we do? I'm um, just sitting around all day. Like, that's why I love that there's so many programs helping veterans to create new identity and be of service in other ways in their communities and families and develop new skills. But without a mission, we can be extremely destructive, and that's why it's important. So you have so many incredible stories in the book, and, and from your show, you've talked to so many incredible personalities. You know, The, the Rock, Joel Osteen. I could go on and on. Of it's, it's a who's who uh, on your show. I'm curious of all the people, of all the stories, who, who really stands out to you as being really impressive, or just having that indelible impression on you. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of them, but the one that comes to me is, is one that I talk about in the book about, um, Jason Redman. I don't know if you, you saw this part about Jason Redman. He was in the military. He got shot in the face and shot many different times and, um, in battle. And he was, he was wounded really bad. I mean, it was, it was, it was rough and you, you couldn't recognize him because his face was essentially like blown up. Um, and he put us, he was in the hospital. I'm just going to read this. He, he was in the hospital and he had a sign outside of his door that he said, if you're coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job that I love. 
doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I'm incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? This is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid growth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And I love that he he essentially lost his identity of being in the military after that day that he was shot in battle. He his face was essentially like mangled, right? And he lost like he had to reconstruct his whole face. You couldn't recognize him. He had a bunch of other wounds as well that he was facing with. And again, he was the victim of a tough situation. And I love that he had no clue what was going to happen. He had no certainty of his life, his identity, his work, and none of this stuff. But he set a mental um, declaration to anyone that entered his hospital room. And he was there for like months, right? Recovering. And he sent this declaration that was like, do not enter unless you are positive. This is fun. This is joyful because he knew that was really going to be the only way he recovered faster. And he would get back to some sense of, you know, belief in himself and recovery at that speed. So for me, that story is powerful because again, there are a lot of people that have and this is not a comparison of traumas or bad things that happen to people, but there's a lot of people that have it far less who who pity themselves and allow for victimization to occur. And it doesn't take you anywhere powerful. And so in that moment, he took his power back when he couldn't recognize himself in the face and see, and he couldn't walk and do these things. He took his power back and said, I'm going to control the thing that I can control my attitude, my energy, and my effort. I can't control the healing. I can't control you know, how people think about me, but I can control this room and my belief around who comes in and what they say about the situation. That's all he could control. But he controlled it with a positive attitude. And for me, that is heroic. It reminds me of David Goggins. Yes. He's great too. Yeah. That attitude where I'm just, I'm just, I'm just coming for you every day. I'm getting up. I'm getting up. Um, I, I'm curious, like, if you think about all of the incredible people, you know, what are some of the common traits that stick out to you where you say, ah, oh, they all have this thing over here, or maybe less of that thing? What makes them special? They were all clear on their mission. I think, uh, you know, no Olympian wins a gold medal by accident. No world champion makes it to the championships on accident. They don't try to get there. They're they're a hundred percent dedicated to the mission, and that's what allowed them to be great in their endeavor in their field. Um, something about, I think the great ones, the ones that went beyond accomplishments, they are able to understand their heart and the power of of love an invisible thing the feeling of love even kobe when i interviewed him he talked about the power of love and the power of expressing love and how that drove him the love of the game the love for his family the love for you know the the process 
And I think they truly love the process and the people around them supporting them on their mission. Uh, and I think the the third thing that they the great ones all have in common is that they live a life of service. They use their talents, they use their gifts to pursue their dreams in the service of others around them. They may not be curing cancer and changing the world, but they're doing it in their own unique way with the people closest to them, therefore making a positive ripple impact on anyone that interacts with them. So what do you do when you're maybe having a bad day? What, what's, what's your go-to? Do you go back to your interview with Kobe to pump you up? Do you go to, for a walk? What, what do you do when you're having a bad day? Because I know it happens. I don't really have bad, full bad days. I have moments. I say bad, bad moments. I used to have worse days when I lacked the, this, I lacked the ability and the skills to stand up for myself. I used to abandon myself a lot to please others, to try to make others happy. And in that process, I would become very unhappy by, by living that way. But I was afraid of letting people down or having people disappointed or thinking bad of me if I didn't do what they wanted me to do. And so I had to learn, unlearn and learn how to stop abandoning myself. So I used to feel like I had bad days um, before that. And I think I don't think I should ever have a bad day again, to be honest. I think, again, I might feel overwhelmed or a little stressed or a little whatever, but I am so consistent with my emotional coaching every couple of weeks that I'm able to process things and realign to, okay, why did I have a bad day? I, should, I shouldn't have a bad day because I have my structure. I know, I, want, I know what I say yes to, and I, say, I know what I say no to. So it might have means I went against something I wasn't supposed to do. So I get realigned to, okay, as long as I get my workout in, if I do a meditation for 10 to 15 minutes, if I have an intentional energy of bringing joy to every room, which is something I do when I open a door, I think of I'm bringing joy into this room. And I'm very intentional about bringing joy, smiling, connecting with people. Because when I focus outward, it's hard to feel bad inward. And so if I'm not doing those things, I just say, okay, that's why I'm having a bad moment. Let me go back to that practice. And it gets me in a state of gratitude and peace and joy. I love that. So lots going on in the world in, in 23. What concerns you? And then on the flip side, what excites you? Uh, what concerns me is people's lack of discipline. The lack of discipline around their their money, like spending habits, their their lack of like saving or investing or just structure around money. What concerns me is their susceptibility to get pulled into negativity, to get pulled into judgment, gossip, distractions, and consuming information that causes more fear and insecurity inside of them as opposed to more confidence inside of them. And also um, what concerns me is people's lack of desire to face himself in the mirrors consistently and say, and celebrate what is working, but also say, okay, there's something here that I could also improve upon or face that could support me in my intimate relationships with my friends, with my family, and feeling better about myself. The lack of 
wanting to face the things they don't like about themselves. This took me a long time to do and, um, and address what's not working, where there's pain. And a lot of the times we're just unconscious of it. You know, for 30 years, I was pretty unconscious of it. It was hard for me to even think about it because I couldn't even face it. I was like, don't judge me. This is who I am. Screw you. Don't, you know, it was kind of, it's really challenging. So that's what concerns me. But I also have compassion for people that, that aren't because I, it was hard for me to do for a long time. Uh, what excites me is because there's a lot of pain and breakdowns, I feel like that's when people are, are able to actually break through the most. When there's a, a lot of extreme breakdowns, I truly think it's hard for people to want to change on their own unless they go through something extreme. Like when things are good, that's when it's hardest to actually break through and improve because things are good. And when things are bad, we get familiar with being treated a certain way in a relationship or we get familiar with these feelings that it's not bad enough. It needs to be some type of extreme near-death experience with you or someone you know or someone close to you, uh, losing your job or your career, going bankrupt. Like something tends to need to happen in order for you to wake up and say, this isn't working. Let me figure out what to do next. And so the fact that there has been a lot of big breakdowns, I think it's allowing people to actually see themselves for the first time and reevaluate. So I feel like that is an opportunity for good. <laughs> I love your perspective. Um, I'm curious of all the great tools and, and tips you, you have in the book, which I encourage everyone to pick up. Was there one that really stood out that had the, the greatest impact for you personally in your own process? I think it all comes down to emotional regulation and the ability to regulate your feelings and your emotions, not numb your emotions, not shut them down, be able to express the wide range of emotions you have, but not be triggered in moments where you don't need to be triggered. And when we can do that, we have much more energy to be there for the people we care about in our careers and our businesses with more patience and energy and clarity. When we are triggered, we are taken off track from our mission. And so the goal is to get back on track as quickly as possible. And I believe that emotional regulation comes through a process of integrating and practicing healing modalities. I've done lots of them. And so for me, it's not about one, it's about what works for you that you're willing to take on and support you in healing so that you are less triggered and have emotional regulation in your life. I, I think that's where I'm most inspired by mentors and coaches and leaders in the world who are poised under chaos, stress, and overwhelm, and they are calm. Maybe they're not, maybe they feel a little stressed uh, for moments, but they're able to see clearly when there's chaos. And I think when more people can do that, as opposed to get in this defend yourself mode and reaction mode, you're not seeing clearly. And it's learning to heal and mend your nervous system and your emotions so that you have the ability to get back to clarity in moments of stress or chaos. That's the greatest tool, I think. 
you know, it, it, it's, it's funny or maybe ironic in that we have two little girls age six and three and a half. And the topic of emotional regulation is a hot topic in our, in our household because they, they don't have, you know, that's what kids don't have. They don't have, so you have to have it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very hard sometimes for me to regulate what it's, you know, two in the morning and one's getting up and the other's going to be like, go back to bed. But you know, to your point, like it, it's so hard to, to be calm and, and, and regulate. And with kids, they pick up everything. And when, especially if you don't have sleep, like that's even harder. So I, again, I have compassion and empathize. I don't have kids, but I could empathize that if I wasn't sleeping, it'd be hard to have emotional regulation. And so it's, it's, so it's, you know, setting yourself up to win as best way possible in order to have the sleep. So when my girlfriend, I'm like, I never get upset or angry at anything she does, but I will get a little testy when I'm tired. And so she knows, like, just kind of a little snappy, right? Or just quick. And I'm just like, I don't have patience. Let's go. Let's move. Like, okay, I can't, I can't talk about this right now. And I know that's, that's what it is about me. And she accepts that about me too. So it's like, um, you know, I'm not perfect. And it's like, okay, let's, we don't have, we don't have challenging conversations or deep conversations at midnight because I know my brain is shut off and I'm not going to be able to be a good listener for you. And I don't want to set ourselves up for failure. So we don't speak about challenging topics, laying down in bed when I'm half asleep. Like let's do that in the morning or the next day and, um, and create those kind of boundaries to support yourself. Makes you think how much conflict would be avoided on social media if people waited maybe a day to respond to something they didn't like or if you had to put it in a draft for 24 hours and then say do i really want to post this a day later yeah or respond to an email or a text uh i've been guilty of that for a lot a lot of times in the past yes myself included i am a work i am, I am a work in progress i am getting better though with, with kids i've gotten better there um so in, in closing let's say you have a, a giant billboard in la to get your message out what, what's on that billboard i would say you are loved you are worthy you matter and again i would want to be a a powerful reminder and interruption for people to see themselves and remember that they are those things and i think if people can remember those things they will make their better decisions better choices they'll act out of courage instead of fear they'll be kinder and generous to people and um, they'll move towards their, the highest version of themselves faster. And that's what I would say. Amen. The Reverend Lewis Howes. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, such a pleasure. Uh, love the greatness mindset. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it.